You're about to listen to a sermon preached from the pulpit of Faith Baptist Church in Folsom, California. We hope that it will be an encouragement and a help to your spiritual walk with the Lord. So grab your Bible and join us as we learn God's Word together today. Take your Bibles and find the wonderful book of James and locate chapter 1. James chapter 1. You're in James chapter 1. Let me introduce where we're headed. If you were to ask me of late, what, what really are your passions in 2020, Pastor? What, what is it that is really motivating you and driving you in ministry? I would answer it with two things. One is the gospel. I believe the Lord has afforded us a wonderful opportunity in 2020 in which people were shaken. People were um, caused to think about their end. And sadly, there's a lot of people thinking about their end, but they do not have the answer of the Savior. And so right now, more than anything, I am fervently trying to get the gospel to as many people as I possibly can in our city. The second thing, though, really deals with believers. My passion right now for believers is that believers in everything that's going on would make wise decisions. And that's a challenge in the difficulty of our days. And so what I'd like to do is to begin today a short little series that really is designed to help us make good decisions in the midst of everything that is going on. Ronald Reagan uh, years ago gave a speech at West Point and in his speech to the young graduates he began by sharing with them that leaders make decisions. And in the process of driving home that point, he shared with all of the students when he personally learned the danger of indecisiveness. He shared the story with those West Point grads that when he was a young boy, he had an aunt who largely influenced and raised him as a child. And this lady had done some baking and was attempting to barter with the local cobbler for a pair of boots for Ronald Reagan and she would exchange some pies for the boots. And she had made the pies and gave them to the cobbler and the cobbler said, all right, young Ronald, what kind of boots do you want? Do you want square-toed boots or do you want round-toed boots? And Ronald Reagan said that as a young boy, he didn't know the answer to that and so he said, I, I don't know, I'll have to get back to you. Well, a couple of days later, the cobbler passed Ronald Reagan on the street and he said, so have you figured out what kind of boots you want? Round-toed or square-toed? Ronald Reagan said, I, I don't know. He then went on in his speech to say that that event taught him the danger of indecisiveness because the cobbler went ahead and made him his boots. And every day he'd look down at his boots and he was reminded of the danger of indecisiveness because his left foot had a round-toed boot and his right foot had a square-toed boot. And he said for about a year and a half he was reminded that leaders make decisions. But he then went on with those graduates to say it's not enough that a leader makes decisions. He said good leaders make good decisions. So how do we make good decisions? With that in mind, would you read with me James 1 and let's start in verse 2. It says this, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience, but let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. 
If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. I wish that you and I had the luxury of only having to make big decisions when life is going really smoothly and easily. But have you ever noticed that it's not quite that way? That usually we have to, in the midst of adversity and difficulty, make some of the biggest decisions of our life. For instance, the individual who loses a loved one. In that moment, they have to make decisions that range from as practical as where will this loved one be buried to as big as what do we do moving forward. The person who's sitting in a hospital and hears negative health news is now forced to make some big decisions about what kind of treatment they're going to choose and what they're going to do in regards to that treatment. Family members have to make decisions about how they're going to navigate that time with that loved one. It's the family that finds out that they have a child who, in rebellion, made a choice that has long-lasting effects. And they have to make decisions for that. The spouse who hears that their spouse is leaving them. And in that moment of difficulty, they have to make decisions about where they're going to live and how they're going to handle this. Sometimes it's when people in the midst of a global pandemic have to start making decisions. I wish we had the luxury of only having to make big decisions when life is easy, but that's not the case. And when you find yourself in a difficult time having to make big decisions, I want you to remember James 1, 2 through 6, because what these verses do is they combine the idea that in the midst of difficulty, God gives us a wisdom to make big decisions. You see it in that first verse, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. The diverse is the multitude, the multiplicity, the variety of things that happen to us. If I was to say today, who here has only one difficulty going on in their life, no one would be able to raise their hand. If I was able to say today, how many of you have more than one thing going on in your life, all of us would be able to raise our hand. I'm thankful that he addresses the idea that there are times when we've just got a lot going on in our life, but he then adds this, if any of you lack wisdom. He puts this into the context of that scenario. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and braideth not, and it shall be given him. So for a second here, by way of introduction, let's just kind of meditate our way through these verses. And I want you to pay attention to the words wisdom and then shall be given him. Because that's where most of us are at. In the midst of difficult seasons, we want to make good decisions. We need the kind of wisdom that comes from on high, not from on low. So later on in the book of James, he's going to contrast. and He's going to say there's a heavenly wisdom and an earthly wisdom. And you and I don't want the earthly wisdom. We want the heavenly wisdom. We want that which comes from above. But the question is, how do I get to the place where God would give me that kind of wisdom? We could ask it this way. What are the ingredients that bring about this kind of wisdom from God? Well, let's note, first of all, if any of you, and let's highlight these words, lack wisdom. I'd like to submit to you today that one of the ingredients that is necessary to getting this wisdom from God is a humble posture. 
You and I have to recognize on a regular basis that I don't have all the answers and that I don't have all of the resources and that in and of ourselves, we cannot put everything together. I need help outside of myself. If you and I want to receive this wisdom from God, it has to be in conjunction with this humble posture that recognizes I need God to give me the wisdom. Notice in that same verse, he says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of, and then I highlight the word God, and then what it says about him, that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not. Now, there's a lot of good stuff that I'm going to share with you today. This is, in my estimation, probably one of the neatest things that I'm going to share with you. Let's look at the two things about God that are highlighted here. The first one is that he giveth to all men liberally. When it comes to God doling out wisdom, aren't you thankful today that he's not meager in his giving of wisdom? In fact, he's very generous. He gives liberally. You could say it this way, and I hope you find comfort in this. It is part of God to regularly give us more wisdom than we need. That is a neat thought. What also encourages me is the next phrase. It says, and he upbraideth not. Of the two, this is my favorite, because what it means is when you and I ask God for wisdom, he never ridicules us for asking. He never goes, come on, Ron, you've been saved this amount of time and you still need to ask for wisdom. Ron, I've seen all the dumb choices you've made. You should know the answer to this one purely from learning from poor experience. He doesn't ridicule the person who asks for wisdom. That is a really encouraging thought. He gives generously and he does not ridicule us. What does this lead to? It's the second ingredient and that is sound theology. If you and I are going to get this kind of wisdom from God, it does require a humble posture that says, I need something outside of myself. I do not have it all. And two, a right sound theology about God. We've got to think right about him. I can put it as simply as this. Two key ingredients are a humble posture and sound theology. Now, again, let's add to this. Let's just make it as practical as we possibly can. In the humble posture, that's a right thinking about yourself. And in the sound theology, it's a right thinking about God. If we're going to get the wisdom from God in the midst of difficult seasons of life, it requires a humble posture, right thinking about myself, sound theology, which is a right thinking about God. Now, when a person has those two things in their life, you know what's going to happen? They very easily and freely ask God. They pray not out of necessity, but out of delight. Lord, I am asking you for this kind of wisdom. That word ask has intrigued me this week, and so I, I really wanted to study it just a little bit more. And I came to the conclusion that a, a good word for us to put here is the idea of supplication. There's an interesting verse in which the King James uses the same Greek word ask, but the translators translate it a little bit differently. In Luke 23:52, as Christ has died on the cross, his disciples come to the cross and our King James translators accurately translate the word ass this way. They begged for the body of Christ. It's appropriate to say, if any of you lack wisdom, let him beg of God for this kind of wisdom. 
Those men who stood at the foot of the cross could not use the family card to say, we're family, can we get the body? They couldn't reach down into their cloaks and pull out money and say, we'll pay for the body of Christ. They had nothing to offer. And it's the kind of supplication that says, Lord, I have nothing to pay for this wisdom, but I have to have it. You have to give me this kind of wisdom. What I think is interesting is in verse 6 in James 1, he says, let us ask with what? Starts with F and ends with eighth. <laughs> it's faith. Now, what helps us ask in faith is a really good sound theology. He goes on in verse 6 to say, asking with faith and not wavering, not giving up, not doubting. What is it that helps us with that faith is a sound theology that says God gives wisdom generously. And by the way, he does not ridicule us when we ask for it. And that makes us come to him begging for the wisdom in the midst of life situations. And God says, I grant that kind of wisdom. And I can't think of a better way to start than that. But I also can't think of a better way to start then if we're going to talk about how to make good decisions than before we go any farther to beg God to give us wisdom. So would you pray with me before we go any farther? Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us grow in our knowledge of who we are and also a knowledge of who you are. So that there is a humble posture and a sound theology that marries itself together to bring us to a place of receptivity for your wisdom. Lord, I don't know all of the seasons and situations of God's people today, but I do know that you strongly desire for us to make good decisions. And so I pray that you would help us with your wisdom to learn and grow today and in the weeks ahead to make good decisions. In your name we pray. Amen. Let me begin now with a principle that goes like this. Good decisions are often preceded by good questions. When I was growing up in my home as a teenager, I wasn't saved and I wasn't walking with the Lord and I really had a poor perspective of authority. And because of that, if my dad was to have told me his opinion on something or what he thought I should do, my natural inclination would have been to say, I'm not going to do it simply because it was you who told me to do it. And so my dad very wisely led me as a teenager with questions more than his opinions about the decisions that I should make. I remember it was about ninth grade, I, I brought a girl home to meet my parents. And I look back on it and I kind of shake my head and go, what was I thinking? This girl was super immature, she was obnoxious, and, and it was one of those situations in which I'm, I'm, I'm there at home, and, and I kind of winced at the stuff she was saying and doing, and we quickly got out of the house and went about our business, and later that night I came home, and my dad could have said, you probably need to let that girl go. He, he didn't. What he did instead was he asked me a question that went like this. Can you really see yourself married to a girl like that for the rest of your life? <laughs> and I remember 
thinking about that question going, you know, I can't. Why did he have to ask that question? And he led me to a conclusion. It was actually a conclusion he had for me. But he led me there by a question. It was about six, seven months before we got married. I was in seminary, or I was finishing up college. We were going to go into seminary, and uh, we were starting deputation to um, come to California. We had a lot of stuff happening, marriage, deputation, finish seminary. And uh, I, I jokingly say that I was the richest I've ever been the year before I got married. And uh, then I got married and I lost it all. <laughs> but I gained everything. <laughs> and uh, um, I, I, I had for a short season there money in my pocket. And I had enough money that I wanted to buy a boat. And uh, I, had, I, had, I had the truck, I had the, the hitch, I had the money in my pocket. I, I, I mean, it was of the Lord. All the details were there. And there was a boat that was available. And it had my name written all over it. And I, I wanted that boat bad. And I had finished a job, and I had met my dad for something, and we were near where that boat was. And I said, hey, Dad, you got to come look at this boat. I'm thinking about buying it. And so we drove over together, and, you know, I got up in the boat, and I'm sitting there, and I'm like, Dad, you can see this, can't you? I mean, this has just got hours of fun. I mean, as a newly married man, I think it'd be good for my marriage to be in this boat. And, uh, and I'm like, Dad, I could even take you and Mom out on the boat. And, I, I mean, I was using every argument as I possibly could. And... And my dad, he goes, well, do you think at this particular season of your life it's wise for you to be buying a boat? <laughs> dad, <laughs> you took all the joy out of buying the boat out. You made me think maturely and wisely and like a grown man. And I didn't buy the boat. <laughs> but not because he told me not to buy it, but because he planted a question that made me think, that led to a decision that was better than what I was previously trying to make. My guess is that all of us could look back over life and there were times in which somebody asked a question that very significantly led us in a better direction than the way we were going. And I recognize that if I was going to teach us how to make good decisions, I probably would not find much effect if I just told you the decisions you need to make something about our human fiber that goes, ah, I don't want you to be telling me what to do. Now, if it is a moral issue that the Bible clearly speaks about, then a pastor has a responsibility to speak to that. But generally speaking, in the decisions of life, there is wisdom in planting questions that lead us to conclusions. So what I'm going to do over the next few weeks is give us approximately six questions that I hope become just part of the way we think. And today we're only going to cover one of them. It's the most important one, I believe, of all the questions that we're going to ask. And it's this question. Have I sought an abundance of godly counsel? In the decisions we're thinking about making, in the decisions we're weighing, in the things that are in front of us, can we say we've sought an abundance of godly counsel? Now, this question is rooted in a proverb that most of us are familiar with. It's Proverbs eleven fourteen, where no counsel is the people fall, but in the multitude of counselors there is safety. Well, again, let's understand the verse and let's take the word fall for a minute and let's understand the word fall. 
when I picture the word fall in English language, the way I think of it as a face plant right in the sand. It's quick, it's sudden, but the word fall that is used here in Hebrew has really the idea of deterioration. It's something that happens slowly over time. In other words, where no counsel is, people slowly deteriorate over time is the idea. But he then goes on to say, in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. There's a perimeter about that person. There is a fence around that person that keeps deterioration from going any farther. There is a hedge of protection about us. And what is it? It's the multitude of counselors. Now we have to answer a question now, why? Why is it that I should have an abundance of good godly counsel in my life? And I want to start that why question with an answer from Jeremiah 17, 9. So look with me at this verse. It's familiar to you, but I want you to have your eyes on the page and a pen ready because I want to highlight something here. In Jeremiah 17 and verse 9, the Bible says this, the heart is deceitful above all things. Now, I find it interesting that the Bible uses the word deceitful and it doesn't use the word dishonest. Okay, it's, it's not necessarily that my heart is actively lying, but rather my heart is actively deceiving, making me think things that are not true or that are different. Bless, he says, the heart is deceitful above all things and it's desperately wicked. To its very core, it is depraved, it is rotten, it is wrong. One commentator in talking about this verse said, our heart is so morally corrupt, I will never outmature it, I will never outgrow it. It will remain this way until I see Christ and am fully transformed into the image of Christ. So what is happening in our hearts? Is that our hearts are actively trying to deceive us. Last night we had three trick-or-treaters. That was the extent of our trick-or-treaters in our neighborhood. There were two little ones. One was like a four-year-old, and then there was a little girl who was a little princess. She was probably about six. And then there was a grown man dressed like Scooby-Doo. <laughs> and, and, I, and I looked in the dark, and I was like, is this a big teenager? And I got a little bit closer, and I'm like, wow, Scooby-Doo has a full beard. <laughs> Scooby-Doo is a grown man. <laughs> and here is he walking through the neighborhood getting candy. Now, it helped in our neighborhood that a lot of people didn't um, allow you to ring the doorbell and come to the door and get it. They put their candy out by the stoop. And so grown men in Scooby suits could just go around the neighborhood filling their little bucket with, with candy and nobody knew it. But there was a part of me that went, hey, you're a grown man here. <laughs> you know, you need to go buy your own candy. And, and here he is kind of under the disguise of a kid out there getting candy. Our hearts like to put on a disguise and present themselves as something they are not. Listen to two other verses. Proverbs 21.2 says, Every way of man is right in his own eyes. One of the things about our heart is it likes to present itself as knowing the right thing. Another proverb in chapter 16, verse 2, he says, All the ways of a man are clean in his own eyes. It, it's not just that, that 
we look at our, our heart and go, it's, it's right. It, it's pure. And it disguises itself as being right and pure. And it's for this reason that when Disney tells you and I to follow our heart, we say, no, Disney's not right in this regard. The Bible tells me my heart is not right and is actively trying to deceive me to think that it is right. In fact, one of the worst things I could do is to follow my heart on some things. That's why we need a resource outside of ourselves, a multitude of counselors. Now, you and I are very familiar with Proverbs 3, 5. He says, trust in the Lord with all thine heart, lean not unto thine own understanding. Have you ever asked yourself, why does the Lord put the second part of this verse in here? I mean, isn't it sufficient to just say, trust in the Lord with all thine heart? I mean, if I'm trusting in the Lord with all of my heart, then I'm not able to lean unto my own understanding. So he doesn't really need to put the second part of the verse. But the more I meditate on it, I think he needed to put the second part of the verse because for most of us, if all he had put was trust in the Lord with all thine heart, we would go, yeah, that's what I'm doing. But he had to add that second statement. And the second statement causes us pause. Oh, I, you know, I don't know if I'm trusting in the Lord with all of my heart because I actually know some things I'm leaning into. Oh, the Lord knows exactly what he's doing in shaking our heart to an awareness of who we really, really are. I know a pastor who, when he was growing up, his family would always go to Naples, Florida for their family vacation in the summer. They would pull their RV down onto the sand and they would camp there for a week or two. And this pastor said that what his dad did every single time they went to Naples, Florida, they'd pull the RV in, dad would get out and he would quickly go out onto the beach and he would assemble this big pyramid of rocks and, and logs and coconuts and he would build this thing up and, and he would point to all the kids and he would say, kids, this is your point of reference. And then he would go unload the RV. Now the reason he was doing that is because the kids, as soon as the RV was set up, they would go jump in the water. And in jumping in the water, they would experience that slow undercurrent. You've been there, you're playing in the ocean, and, and you kind of look up and you realize, oh wow, I'm like 100 yards down from where I started. He would build that so that the kids always had a point of reference to know how they had gotten away from where they entered into the ocean. The multitude of counselors that God is asking us to have are the kind of people who give us a point of reference. When the undercurrent of my heart wants to lead me astray, all of us need that because left to our own heart, we'll think we're doing everything right and pure and we go the wrong direction. Notice in this, that each of those verses, Proverbs 21 and then Proverbs 16, notice the transition. Every way of man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord. Proverbs 16, 2, all the ways of a man are clean in his own eyes, but the Lord. What he's doing there is what all of us need in our life, and that is in the midst of the decisions we're making, somebody who says, but let's think about the Lord. 
let's bring the Lord into this equation. Let's let the Lord be that, that point on the beach that tells us where we've drifted to. There's something that psychologists call a cognitive bias. It's the practice of looking for information and arguments that support what we already believe or want to do. How many of you are guilty of that? My hand is raised. I mean, if I'm going to put people around me, I want to put people around me that agree with me. I mean, I don't necessarily go, hey, do you disagree with me? Want to be my friend? <laughs> I don't do that. I, I look for people who, who want to agree. And, and we're all kind of prone that direction. So much so that those who talk about decision-making one author said this, so many of us are on a confirmation quest rather than correction quest. We're looking for people around us who will confirm what we already want to do or what we've already decided to do. And we really don't want anybody who kind of pushes us away from what we've already decided. So who's the who? It's not a variety of different types of counsel, but rather a variety of different counselors pointing me to the same thing. It's the word of God. Early on in pastoring, there was an individual who uh, shared with me as a pastor that he thought that in, in the church that I was pastoring, that it was a flaw in my leadership that I had a group of men leading the church who, for the most part, were very, very similar in personality and philosophy. And his recommendation to me was that for the church to be healthy, we need to have a plurality of personalities and a plurality and a, and a multiplicity of different philosophies. Even so much that he thought there was advantage to having someone in church leadership who was an unbeliever so that the church would always think like an unbeliever. I remember him and I going around and around and around and around that that's not truly valuable. And I understood, though, where he was coming from. Is it truly wise to have a, a group of people who are all the exact same? Now, in this, the Bible is not exhorting that you should have the same personality, same philosophy, that there is just complete uniformity to your counselors. The uniformity needs to be this. They are people who point us to the Word of God. That's the point of uniformity. That's the kind of people that we need to have. So what does this look like? Okay, what does this look like in everyday life? All right, let me give you three things. One, it's a consistent exposure to the preaching of God's word. What you are doing right now on this Sunday morning is putting counsel into your life. And my hope is from this pulpit, what you are hearing is counsel that points you to the word of God. It is interesting in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18 that the Bible says that the preaching of the cross to an unbeliever is foolishness, but to a believer it's the power of God. That doesn't mean that the person behind the pulpit who is speaking is some type of Thor-like individual filled with power, but rather that God has an ability through the feeble preaching of a man to do powerful things. There is a power that comes in God's preaching of the word. There's good counsel there. Remember in the text of 2 Timothy, um, and specifically 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 2, uh, the Bible says to pastors, preach the word in season and out of season, right? 
Now, I think there's an implication for all of us on this side of the pulpit that if pastors from this side are supposed to preach in season and out of season, that means that God's people are supposed to listen in season and out of season. Okay, now please don't raise your hand because I, I don't want to embarrass anybody, but have you ever been to a Sunday service at Faith Baptist Church of Folsom and when the message was all done, you thought to yourself, I don't know if I really needed that, but okay. Ever been there? You're like, I, I don't know exactly why that was the message I was supposed to hear on a Sunday morning. But one of the things I think you're going to find in life is that God does not always just give us what I need for now. He regularly gives us what we need for days ahead. And you and I have to be very, very careful about choosing church and services that we attend based upon whether we think we need what is coming from the pulpit. I remember one time years ago, um, it was my favorite series I've ever preached here at Faith. It was a series through the book of Job. And I was, I was on the first chapter of Job, and there was a, a family in our church who decided to leave our church during Job chapter 1. I was sitting with them, and I said, sure, why, why are you guys leaving? And their answer was, well, we're not really in any kind of trial or tribulation right now. We don't really need Job 1. And, and so there, there's a church here in town that they, they have a message series going right now that it's really where we're at right now. And I found it interesting over the next year as I watched their life from afar. Their life was filled that next year with just a whole host of trials. I mean, big ones, hard ones. And there was a little part of me that went, wanted to go say, hey, <laughs> you probably need a job. But because they were choosing what they thought they needed in the moment, they missed out on what would have been fantastic to help them navigate through the year they didn't know who they had coming. And so you and I submit ourselves to this exposure to the preaching of God's word, even if sometimes it doesn't seem to be right where I'm at now, because we trust that God is giving us what we need now that may be most useful down the road. Okay? If I have learned something out of COVID in 2020, it's that God has very wisely made the church get really good at learning how to broadcast messages by video and audio. And there's a reason I think he is wise in doing that, is that there is a strong possibility in the days and years ahead, churches are going to need to use those tools more than we ever thought we would need to. So take churches in California. It doesn't take but a few sparks to create a fire that you and I may not be meeting because of a fire. An earthquake could postpone our services for a few weeks. Another pandemic. England just shut down. Europe is slowly shutting down again. We may shut down again. But one of the things that God has been doing over this last year is teaching churches how to do this. But it's not just that we do it. It's because he recognizes that it's the preaching of God's word that is going to be what helps people make big decisions no matter what's happening in life. Number two, it's a consistent practice of reading God's word. 
when you and I, Monday through Saturday, submit ourselves to the reading of God's word, you are submitting yourself to great counsel. I have a friend who will regularly in his preaching, he says, I sought counsel from four of my great friends, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I think there's a wisdom in thinking that way. That if I was to ask you today, who are some of the counselors in your life? You would say, well, Joshua and Moses. Yeah, Matthew, Mark, Luke, Paul. Yeah, those are good counselors in my life. Don't miss that in James, when he says, when you and I submit ourselves to the perfect law of liberty, that man is blessed in his deed. Psalm 1 says to the person who chooses not to walk according to the way of the, uh, the unwise or the ungodly, but chooses to submit himself to the word of God, that man is blessed in his deed. He's like a tree that is planted by the rivers of water. It does feel like a broken record that pastors over and over and over and over and over again are saying things like church is essential, read your Bible every day. The reason we're saying that over and over again is because it is in those two venues that you and I receive fantastic counsel that points us back to the Word of God. Number three, it's a consistent interaction with godly people who are sharing and living out the Word of God. The Christian life was not meant to be a lone ranger life. We need godly people in our life who are living out truth and they are sharing with us the truth of God's word. I was reading an article earlier this week about accountability and having people in our life that hold us accountable. And the article very wisely pointed out that good accountability is not accountability that is trying to call me out. Like, I got you, I caught you. Good accountability does not call us out, it calls us to. It is constantly pulling us to the place that we're supposed to be. That's what all of us need. It's interesting to me in Hebrews 10 and verse 24, the Bible says, Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works. Say it this way, you and I need people who by the way they live and the way they share the word of God, they do irritate me to a good place. They, they push me to be the kind of person that I'm supposed to be. Here is just pastoral observation, okay? I'm not going to charge you for this. This is just free pastoral observation. I regularly watch people in the midst of difficulty who have to make big decisions. It's these three things that seem to be the first to go. They stop attending church. They're so busy in life that they stop reading their Bible and they start distancing themselves from other believers. I told someone recently, I said, the last nine months, I feel like the majority of my ministry is helping people not make the worst decisions. And what we want to do is help people make the best decisions. But can I just tell you one of the worst decisions you and I can make is in the busyness and difficulty of life, we pull away from the preaching, pull away from our personal reading, and we pull away from God's people. It's not a good place to be. And going back to the proverb, it's when you and I remove that counsel that we start to slowly deteriorate. And it's kind of like the kid in the ocean. He wakes up and he goes, oh, wow, I'm like 300 yards away from where I should be. How'd I get here? But they pulled away. I do want you to note the theme. 
consistent exposure to God's Word, consistent practice of reading God's Word, sharing and living out the Word of God. At the heart of good counsel, it's good counsel that is pulling you into the Word of God. That's what we need. Now let me close with this verse. Hebrews 4.12. It says, For the word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And this whole verse has got a lot of good stuff in it, but the thing I want to draw our attention to is the last phrase that says, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Here's what the word of God can do for you that no other human being can do. The Word of God is the only thing that can address your motives in the decisions you're making. Okay, so I could sit with you at a coffee shop, I could sit with you in my office, and I could give you questions, I could give you counsel. The one thing I cannot do is tell you your motive. And there are times when we can't even tell you our true, pure motive. For instance, Earlier this week, I, I was praying very, very specifically for something. And if you had heard what I was praying for, you would say, Pastor, that seems like a very honorable way for a pastor, husband, and father to pray. That's admirable, Pastor. It was around Wednesday, though. I, I had been praying about that, and, and I was going about some business that I had. And all of a sudden, it, it was the Spirit of God through a couple of different texts of Scripture and James chapter 1 that I was meditating in, it was as if the Holy Spirit just smote my heart and he said, Ron, you know the reason you're praying that way is so that that person will change and quit being an irritant to you. I'm just sitting there going, God is exactly right. I haven't been praying for this person to change because I really want what's best for them. I want them to change because they're irritating my life. And my life would be easier if they weren't that way. But previous to Wednesday, I would have told you I had the best of motives in the way I was praying. But I needed something outside of me to highlight my motive and to bring me into check. But here's what's neat about the Word of God. The Word of God does not just reveal motives, it renews motives. It's the only thing that can reveal what I'm really being driven by and then at the same time renew that motive to make it a motive that is truly pleasing to the Lord. Does that make sense? So on a regular basis, you and I have to be asking the question, have I sought an abundance of godly counsel? That has to be part of the way we're living. And I hope that this question then leads us to a commitment today that sounds like this. I will live a life that is characterized by seeking an abundance of godly counsel. That's my prayer. I really believe in the big decisions that are upon so many of us in the midst of the season we're in. We have to be on a consistent basis seeking godly counsel. It's one of the things that God has given to us to make good decisions. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word, and I pray that this first question would be used of you to help each of us make some adjustments in how we're reading our Bible during the week, how we think of preaching, even in how we interact with other believers.
Lord, I pray that today, first and foremost, this question would lodge itself into our thinking and help us make good decisions. Secondly, I do pray that we would make a commitment today to live a life characterized by seeking godly counsel. Help us, I pray. In your name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. You can find more sermons on our website at www.fbcfolsom.org. If you have any spiritual questions we could help you with, please don't hesitate to contact us through email at info at fbcfolsom.org or simply call the church office at 916-983-9862.